0: Hey, Studio DNA fans. I'm Chad, a new podcast host here on the network. I'd like to invite you to check out my new show called Hot Takeout, where I mix together some of my favorite things, fast food and musical artists. When you listen, you'll get that feeling you have when you get an onion ring in the bottom of your French fries. It's a win. We'll dig deep with the artists. We'll find out what inspires them and what foods they have to stay away from. And we're also playing fast food games, which will also make sense when you listen. So check out the Hot Takeout podcast streaming right now here on the Studio DNA podcast Network. Hi, I'm David Stoker, and I want to welcome you to the Better Life and Recovery Hashtag Hope Dealer Movement Podcast. As a visible and vocal member of the recovery community since 2009, I'm frequently asked questions and for advice from people all the time. Some are curious, some are still using, some are in recovery, and some people just care about somebody who's currently struggling with a hurt, habit, or hang-up. If people in my community have those questions, I guarantee that people everywhere are looking for answers as well. We started this podcast to give you answers and support, because not only is recovery real, it is amazing. Hope you enjoy the show. So, welcome back to another episode of Better Life and Recovery. I'm your host David Stoker, and today we're going to talk well, we're going to start by talking about alcohol and then we're going to blend it into the opioid epidemic and how how it may possibly be taking the focus away from other drugs. So, what we're going to be talking about is I don't know, we're going to look at some alcohol stats really quick. I was looking at some uh, research and it said that from 2007 to 2017, alcohol-related deaths in the United States rose by 35%. Among women, it actually rose by 67% compared to 29% among men. So what we're seeing is we're having a lot more women that are dying now from alcohol use which is something that we're not talking about. And that's something we're going to talk about. I mean, we have been talking about it some, right? We've talked about it with our youth. And what it said is over that same period of time, teenager-related uh, deaths have decreased by 16% among that, in that same 10-year period. But the rest of the United States, we have seen it rise. Uh, from 45 to 64-year-olds, it's actually rose by 25%. Now, drug, alcohol, and suicide deaths are what they call despair deaths. Uh, It also goes along with stress. So those are what they say are two of the most common factors. And men tend to crash and burn a lot quicker than women do. Uh, A lot of times with men, when they have drinking problems, they tend to drink a lot more publicly. So there's bar fights. They lose their jobs. People tend to be more aware of the drinking problem. Whereas with women, a lot of times what we see is women have distress um, and whenever they get distressed, say at work, it's not like a guy. A lot of guys are going to call home and say, listen, I am calling my, uh, I'm going to call home and I'm going to talk to them at home about maybe, uh, you know what, I'm going to go out with my friends and have a couple drinks. So guy calls up and says, Hey, I'm going to have a couple drinks, goes to the bar, drinks with his friends. And if he drinks over, then he's out in public. And a lot of times there are some things that happen with that. With a lot of women, women tend to, I mean, it's, I don't know. I don't want to sound sexist when I say this, but a lot of women, they still have responsibilities that they take care of. You know, honestly, I believe that it's pretty easy for me as a male And this isn't me being sexist, but me saying that a lot of times I work and then I come home and I'm like, okay, I'm done with work and I just kind of shut down. My wife, on the other hand, is cooking dinner. She's being a little more attentive to um, the kids that are in the house. And that's what we see with women, too, where the man can sit there and call and say, I'm going to go out with my friends and have a drink. The mom's like, I've got to get home and I've got to get dinner ready because the kids are going to be there. And then you're going to come home. You're going to need to eat. So a lot of times uh, with women, what the study said is that women are going home and they're having a couple drinks with, while they're making dinner. And the problem with that is where the guy may have a rough day and once or twice a week, he says, hey, I'm going to go out with the guys and have a drink. Mom comes home every single day and is preparing dinner and having a couple drinks. So it becomes a habit. And then that habit over time can learn to can kind of lead to a pattern of excessive drinking. Um, When it comes to stress relief. Uh, the study said 10% of parents believe it's reasonable to have at least two, days a drink, two drinks a day to reduce stress, which if that becomes a habit, of course, can kind of fling out. Now, this is where we get into some more interesting things, in my opinion, because now we're going to look at why alcohol, even though alcohol kills almost 20,000 people more a year than opioids— isn't getting the attention. There's no huge public outcry. There's not a lot of people that are like, oh my goodness, look, look at how many people are dying due to alcohol poisoning. Instead, all we hear about is all the people that are dying from opioids. And in fact, like here in here where I live in Greene County, we have more people dying from methamphetamine than we do from opioids, or at least we did last year and the year before right? So I would say in the last five years, uh, I don't have the figures in front of me right now, but I think three, either three or four of the past five years, I know it's at least three of the past five years in Greene County, we've had more people, more deaths due to methamphetamine than opioids. And yet we hear about the opioid epidemic. Now we'll get to that in a minute. What we're going to start with though is with alcohol. Why do you think we hear more about opioids than we do about alcohol when it comes to deaths even though more people are dying even though we have 50 percent more people dying from alcohol of course it's because it's socially acceptable uh i don't know how many people are sitting there at work and during lunch they look at one of their buddies and they say hey how about you meet up with me uh after work and we'll go shoot up some heroin i'd be willing to bet that doesn't happen very often Right, but I know that there's all kinds of jobs where people are talking over lunch. In fact, they may even be having. I remember back in the day, it was a you had a power lunch and it was a two martini lunch, so you actually drank during lunch. Now I think that's reduced a little bit, but we still have a lot of people that are meeting and drinking after work, so they're going to talk about that over the course of the day. Now, don't get me wrong, uh, there's some businesses, and I don't want to pick, but. I guarantee that there's some jobs where it's a lot more likely for drugs to be there. Absolutely. Alcohol, alcohol is socially acceptable. So when we have something that's socially acceptable, we're going to have a lot more people that are accepting of it. So what we're going to see for starters, the alcohol industry I think plays a huge role in that. Uh, If you look at Europe in Europe, they're not even allowed to advertise alcohol on TV. They can't have commercials because they know the impact it has on people that are watching those commercials. Organizations and companies aren't paying millions of dollars to create commercials because they're not piquing people's interest and making them go out and buy their merchandise. And in this case, we're buying a merchandise that's poison. I mean, it, it is, it's toxic. Uh, that's why it takes more and more of it for us over time. Uh, reach that point, right? Because our body sees it as a poison and it builds a tolerance to it. It takes a little bit and builds up a tolerance over time. So we need more and more to get us to that point. So we have people that are literally making tons of money on something that is toxic. And I realize that there's some people that drink in moderation and everything else. But honestly, uh, when we look at commercials, we're going to see, I always ask this question when I'm in a, in like a room full of people. I say, raise your hand if you have a PhD. And generally, I don't have a lot of hands go up. In fact, a lot of times I don't have any hands go up because I'm in the middle of doing like an opioid 101 or Narcan training or, you know, uh, one of those other, one of the other, out. Uh, Locales that I speak at no don't get me wrong. Sometimes I'm speaking at conferences in front of doctors and people like that but a lot of times I'm not and what we have is we have a uh, We have people with PhDs in marketing and people with PhDs in Advertising and psychology and sociology that are sitting there making these commercials and they they make them as alluring as possible It's why you don't see Bertha holding Helga's hair up at 3 a.m. while she throws up in a toilet, right? It doesn't show the reality of it. Instead, what you see is these sexy, hot people sitting there dancing, having a good time. with the. It just doesn't get any better than this because we want people to go out and buy it. The problem is a lot of times what we're doing is we're having people that are younger get introduced to it. And we also have have those commercials that are convincing people over time that it's not a problem to drink. I'm sorry. It's, it causes a whole lot of deaths. And uh, one of the things that scares me about commercials and because of how mainstream alcohol is, it is a couple things. We'll look at the first thing. The first thing that I would say it, that's a real problem is the fact that Someone who waits until they're 18 to drink is far less likely to develop a substance use disorder. If they wait until they are 21, they're even more well likely to never develop an alcohol problem or a drug problem over the course of their lifetime. And a lot of times we're not encouraging kids to wait. I mean, I remember when I was younger and people had key parties and everybody thought that those were the coolest parents, right? They'd have everybody come to the house. They'd take their keys that night, let everybody get drunk, and then they wouldn't give give anybody their keys back until the next afternoon after everybody had sobered up, had breakfast, and sat around for a while. Man, looking back on it. No wonder so many of us ended up having drinking problems. No wonder we had so many people die drinking and driving when I was in high school um, on gravels because of those key parties, because it, it made us think that it was okay for us to drink. Another problem with alcohol is it impacts the prefrontal cortex. And that's the part of your brain that's directly between your temples, right behind your eyes. It's the part of your brain that says, yeah, that's a really bad idea right it's that executive thinking that shuts down those bad thoughts it's why back when i was a bartender i can't tell you how many times i would break up fights between a guy and his sober driver where at the beginning of the night they had given his you know this guy given his keys to this guy and said listen we're gonna drink you're not you're gonna drive us home And then at the end of the night, after the alcohol had kind of shut down or reduced the effectiveness of the prefrontal cortex, they were like, that's my car, I'm driving it. And they would literally get into fistfights trying to get their keys back from their buddy that wasn't going to let them drink and drive and kill themselves. So that's another huge problem. And I think alcohol is the gateway drug, period. I don't care what anybody has to say because... I may think that drugs are a really bad idea, especially when I'm younger, you know, um, but after a couple drinks, that part of my brain starts to relax or shut down a little bit. So when I would normally say no to methamphetamine or cocaine or, you know, pills or even heroin, you know, that's the thing that scares me now is I've had kids that I've assessed that are like 20, 21 years old. And when I asked them, what's the first drug you ever tried? They were like, oh, the first drug I ever tried, well, it it was alcohol and then heroin. And I'm like, how do you jump from alcohol to heroin? Like when I was younger, that was the no-no drug, right? Everybody has lines that they draw in the sand. And for a lot of us, it started off with either alcohol or weed. We could justify that, especially alcohol. It was legal. So we crossed that first line with alcohol, and then we jumped over to weed, because you know it comes from the ground, man. You know, God put it here. Even though I don't see people running around to smoke ditch weed that God actually put here, they want stuff that's been genetically enhanced to have like the highest Delta 8, Delta 9 content. But that's a completely different discussion. We're not going to get into that because when it comes to marijuana, maybe one of these days I'll do one of these uh, live streams or a podcast on marijuana and look at some of the negative impacts it has and some of the positive medicinal benefits it has because there are negatives and positives to it. I don't care what you believe. If you believe that there's 100% upside and no downside, you're an idiot. And if you believe that there's 100% downside and no upside, you're an idiot. And uh okay, maybe that's a little harsh. Um what's a better word? Uh Oh, you are, uh, you're uninformed. Okay. Uh, and hopefully you're smart enough to listen to facts and be informed. I remember going to a uh, marijuana symposium that they had in St. Louis and they brought in some of the best minds from around the country. I mean, they had some of the guy, they had one of the professors that said, I think it's uh, university of California, Santa Barbara. And he actually is at one of the, I think there's only like two or three colleges, but he's one of the professors that actually is legally able to run marijuana research. Like the government grows marijuana, sends it to him, and he's able to do that research. And it was amazing just to see the way people reacted. Uh, Whenever he first got up there, he started talking about the negative impact of marijuana. And you could see all of the pro-legalization people sitting around and and literally looking at each other like this guy's an idiot he has no idea what he's talking about and you saw all the people that were against legalization that were like yeah this guy's a genius listen to this guy and he went through the first half of his of his presentation and then he flipped it in the second half and he talked about all of the positive medicinal benefits of marijuana and you saw the crowd flip you saw the people that were that had just been calling him an idiot. They were like, well, maybe this guy knows what he's talking about after all. And then you had the people that had thought this guy walked on water sitting there going, ah, uh, you know, I don't think this guy knows what he's talking about. Because everybody wants somebody to support their belief. I believe that... The truth is somewhere in the middle, and we have two sides that have spun it out so far that it's hard to know what's the truth. It's kind of like alcohol, right? We have, we have an alcohol lobby. We have a liquor lobby, and the liquor lobby has a ton of money, and they have a lot of influence with policymakers, which is why alcohol taxes are really hard to pass. Honestly, what I think would be amazing is if we worked on passing legislation that would raise taxes on alcohol and raise taxes on opioids and would earmark that money. Say uh, a five cent raise, right? Or say two cents per pill for opioids. And we take one of those cents and one of those pennies goes directly to treatment and one of those let's make it three cents why not right three cents a pill that way we can have a penny that goes directly to prevention a penny that goes directly to treatment and a penny that goes directly to recovery supports because i think all three of those are very very important and i mean in a perfect world maybe it would be even greater maybe it'd be a five cent right Uh, because then maybe we could do harm reduction, which we could separate out. Even though harm reduction fits into treatment, fits into prevention, and fits into recovery supports, very seldom do, do they get any money, right? There's very little funding, just like recovery supports get very, very little funding, even though we have a huge impact on outcomes. Just like harm reduction doesn't get a lot of money, even though there is a ton of money, that goes uh, I mean, there's a uh, what was I going to say? Um, there's a ton of uh, people that get into treatment through harm reduction. So literally, they're building those numbers. And they're also keeping people alive long enough to get into treatment and keeping people alive long enough to find a recovery. So I really think it fits into everything. And I even think harm reduction can fit into prevention. So I think it literally is in all three. Just like I feel recovery supports can work on all three. But I feel like you need to to fund them out of separate pots. And let's not do the crap with this money like we have done with, uh, say, in Missouri, we had uh, gambling. And the money that was made from lottery was supposed to go to, say, education. And what happens is it's not earmarked to be added on top of education. So what that means is instead of there being extra money for education, we just reduce the amount that the state allocates for education. And then we take the money that came from gambling and we throw it in there on top. So now that it's still getting the exact same amount or maybe less, but we can say, "Oh, look, gambling went in there, but it's not actually impacting it at all." So, if we were to make, if we were to pass one of those taxes, like a four or five cent tax uh, on liquor or a four or five cent tax on opioids per pill, what we would need to do is say that's supposed to go above and beyond what's already allocated. Otherwise, we're really not going to get any more money, and that sucks. Because that's what we see over and over again. And that's why we have people that are still dying while they're waiting to get into treatment. And maybe that's where we're going to flip from talking about alcohol and jump over into the opioid epidemic. We'll talk about the opioid epidemic a little bit. Still got a little bit of time here. And I'm kind of like a rabbit right now. And I'm running down a couple different uh, trails. Because I didn't have a great set of plans where I was going to talk about today. I want to talk about how we're seeing a huge increase in alcohol deaths. Uh, how we have almost 50% more people who are dying every year from alcohol compared to opioids, and yet all the attention and focus is on opioids. But now while we're talking about why there's all this attention and focus on opioids, what I really want us to stop and look at is how that focus has taken away from uh, all the other drugs. Okay, we were talking about the opioid epidemic, and here's what we've seen with the opioid epidemic is we have seen... It get all of the attention, even though we have increases in people dying from alcohol, increases in people dying from, opi- uh, from methamphetamine, increases in people dying from benzodiazepine, increases in people dying from cocaine. We have states that have more amphetamine and methamphetamine deaths than opioid deaths, like, say, Oregon. And we have counties like Greene County, where I live, where Springfield, Missouri is, that have more people dying from methamphetamine overdoses than we do from opioid overdoses. So that really scares me, all that attention that's going. And what's happening is now we have things, and I saw somebody mention this earlier today, because you really need to look at medication and realize that there's a lot of people, uh, especially people with opioid use disorder and some people with alcohol use disorder, that are helped by medication. There's multiple pathways to recovery, and just because their pathway isn't, say, abstinence like your pathway is, it doesn't mean that their pathway is wrong, right? So if somebody's prescribed medication and that's what's helping them, then let's support that. It's keeping them alive, and I know a ton of people who had lives that were complete train wrecks that through medication, psychopharmacology, now are living their best life. They are living a self-directed life. They're striving to reach their full potential. They are doing everything that is defined by the SAMHSA definition of recovery, which is a great definition of recovery. Uh, recovery isn't being clean. I hate that expression. I'm only clean for 30 seconds after I get out of the shower. The rest of my day, I'm in long-term recovery. But I don't like clean because clean just means abstinent. And if all you're after is abstinence, then you're shooting way low. I don't want you to be clean. I want you to be in recovery. And that means that you're striving to reach your best life. So what that means to me is that I will never reach it. Hopefully, you are always striving to make yourself better. And that's what recovery is. So recovery is amazing. I hate the fact that that we're losing focus on that. So now I said some people need medication. And we keep saying that. Well, we keep hearing that medication is the gold standard for recovery. And they're not throwing on the end of there, medication is the gold standard for recovery from OUD, opioid use disorder. Instead, they're saying medication is the gold standard for recovery. And I had a lady that I talked to Friday, Thursday or Friday on the phone. It was Thursday because I was at a board meeting Friday. Um, I talked to her Thursday on the phone and she was, she was frustrated, and as I talked to her, she had contacted three different people who had directed her towards uh, a certain treatment facility because they uh, allow because they put people on medication for their substance use disorder. And I, I'm like, okay, so wh- where's the frustration? And she was like, well, you know, I'm trying to figure out what medication is going to work best for my son. And I was like, oh, well, what's your son's, you know. What's your son's drug of choice? And she said, well, my son uses methamphetamine. I said, what else does he use? And she said, well, he smokes weed on occasion when he's been up for too long to help him mellow out a little bit. She said, but all he does is methamphetamine and marijuana. And people keep telling me that I need to go to a treatment center that, that will prescribe a medication. She said, and yet when I tried to research it, I couldn't find any medication for methamphetamine. But yet they told me that it was the gold standard for recovery and I want my son to be in recovery. And I said, oh, well, there's... No medication for methamphetamine. There's nothing that's FDA approved. So she's frustrated and I don't blame her for being frustrated uh, because medication is not the gold standard to treat cocaine use disorder, amphetamine, methamphetamine use disorder, benzodiazepine use disorder. It's not the gold standard at all. And yet, this is what she was hearing instead of here. Instead of somebody saying, and nobody, I was like, "Did anybody ask you what your son's drug of choice was?" And she said, "No, they just each told me that I needed to get a hold of that they could get a hold of this treatment center, um, and help get him in." And I'm like, "Well, did they give you the number to call in?" And she said, "No, they said that they would make the connections." And instantly, I'm thinking, "Oh, okay, so you were talking to?" She'd actually been on Facebook and. Two people from Facebook and one person, uh, she called uh, one of the numbers that she'd seen on TV. And that's one of the problems is we have people that are connected to treatment centers. And instead of somebody sitting there and taking the time to talk to her about her son and what his drug of choice was and those types of questions, they're instantly directing him to treatment. Honestly, if you're directing somebody to treatment and you don't do at least a mini assessment, how can you direct them to the right treatment? Because we have different treatments out there, like treatment facilities, and some of them specialize. And, and they do really good work for certain populations. Like, say, if somebody has an amphetamine use disorder, or if somebody has OUD, or if somebody has post-traumatic stress disorder, or co-occurring disorder, right? So we know that we need to be aware of where we're directing some people. And there's some people I won't even direct a treatment, right? Right. Because that's another thing. If I have somebody that's just smoking weed, I've, I've told multiple parents, do not send your kid to treatment. Oh, well, he's smoking marijuana, and he needs to go to residential treatment. And I'm like, no, you're going to put him in residential treatment with people who are doing heroin and methamphetamine, and he's going to come out of there worse than he went in. Why don't you just start off by having your kid see a therapist? Right? Maybe there's a mutual support group we can get them into, like a young people in recovery or a uh, smart recovery adolescent and teen, because we have mutual support groups now that are directed at working with youth. And that's a great thing to put a kid in with other kids, people they can relate to instead of putting them into, I don't know, I, I don't want to hit on all meetings, but I will say there are m- meetings out there that are more predatory than others, I've seen people walk into a meeting and get treated like fresh meat to a grinder, and that's really scary. You know, that's the one thing that I like about the the group. I can talk about. You know, when I was a ministry leader for a Celebrate Recovery, I w- I always remember saying, "This is not a dating ministry. If you didn't come here with somebody, don't leave with them." Right. And if somebody was not was overstepping their boundaries, I could say, you know what, this may not be the group for you. Here's some other groups you can go check out. I don't want to see you back here for the next 30 days. If you decide that you want to come back and not hit on every young person that walks through the door, uh, you can come back after 30 days and we can give it another try. In fact, if you want to talk right now, we can sit down and talk right but i don't need to victimize other people or have other people preyed on that are at those groups but anyway that's a whole nother rabbit trail and i've gone way off but i don't know maybe that's the reason people listen or watch this i have no idea honestly uh maybe you can tell me why you listen or watch this that would be interesting for me so bottom line multiple pathways to recovery Not all of those pathways contain medication. Medication for opioid use disorder tends to be the gold standard. We have the best outcomes, right? I can look at research and see that people who are prescribed, let's just say, buprenorphine, like a suboxone, subutex, methadone are going to have longer life expectancies than people who are not prescribed medication with an OUD and dead people never find recovery that's an important thing to hang on to and for those church people out there uh I feel I should throw this in uh if you truly care about somebody's salvation dead people will never get saved you can't redeem a dead person's soul so maybe we should support things that keep people alive like syringe access like medication and some of those other things so that we can actually have a man so that we can actually have people living long enough to find recovery because that's what this is all about is people finding recovery so opioid crisis has taken away the opioid epidemic. It's not an opioid epidemic. It's a drug pandemic. In fact, it's probably more of a, uh, a pandemic period. Uh, I don't know what I would call it, whether it's a despair or a stress, but whenever you have increases in just about e- people dying from just about every single drug out there from alcohol all the way down to, I don't know what I would go down to Honestly, I guess alcohol is actually at the top because it kills the most people. So alcohol, opioids, methamphetamine, benzodiazepines, cocaine. We've seen increases in all of those the last several years. But we've also seen increases in suicides. We also see more people that are, have co-occurring disorders. Uh, we have more people that are experiencing traumatic uh, episodes and developing PTSD. So uh, we really need to look at all of that. We have like a perfect storm for people to die right now in our country. And I'm going to say it's been that way before Trump came into office. For anybody that wants to blame it on Trump, I don't think it's a a president's problem because this has started a while back. It didn't just start in 2016. We were seeing increases in overdose deaths prior to 2016. Like I said, with alcohol from 2007 to 2017, the alcohol-related deaths rose 35%. So we need to look at the fact that we have all of these different drugs that are impacting people, that are killing people, not just opioids. And we need to not lose focus on those other drugs, especially in some of our areas. Because I know in a lot of rural communities, we're seeing more people that are dying from alcohol than from opioids. And I know like in Springfield and other states even, like I said, uh, Oregon, we're seeing more people die from methamphetamine overdose than than heroin overdose, so we need to be very, very cognizant of those problems and realize that we're missing people if we keep focusing on OUD and if we keep saying medication is the gold standard for recovery and like a like it's like it's a blanket statement, um, and not realize that it may be a uh, the gold standard for OUD and it may even be a gold standard for alcohol, but there's no medication that touches. Cocaine, amphetamine, methamphetamine, benzodiazepine, and some of those other uh, drugs that are killing people left and right. So um, I don't know. I I guess this is kind of where I'll sign off on this. I don't, because I feel like I'm rambling on and on, but I just want us to be aware and I don't want us to miss. And I don't want beds to be taken up and people that have other. Use disorders, not able to get into beds because we're focused so hard on one drug. I will tell you now, yes, opioids kill people faster. It ends people's lives faster. But methamphetamine destroys people's lives faster. That's my opinion. But most people I know that are using opioids, they crash. They sleep, right? Most people that are using meth, we stay up for days, Sometimes we stay up for a week at a time, so we have a lot more time to get into trouble. And then uh, we have those other drugs that blend in with it. So I don't want to play one end against the other. Yes, we have more people. uh, It's killing people quicker, and we have more young people that are dying from opioids, and I think that's why there's that laser focus. But we've got a lot of young people that are dying from other drugs, too, and we need to not lose that focus. And it's not just our kids. It's our parents. You know, we're having record-setting numbers of grandparents that are having to get jobs after they've retired because now they're sitting there raising their grandkids, which is something they never expected. And they've already blown their retirements, putting their kids through treatment, and now their kid's either dead or their kid's in prison, and they're having to adopt their grandkids and raise them as their own, and they don't have the money. So we've got all kinds of problems out there. And... Maybe that's where this tax thing comes in, right? Maybe that's where a five cent tax comes in so that we can have more funding for prevention and good prevention, right? Teaching kids life skills instead of saying drugs are bad because I don't think there's a kid out there who believes that heroin or methamphetamine have vitamins and minerals in it. It's killing their friends. They know it and yet they're using it anyway. Why? Because life hits people hard. Not that there's not people that don't use because they love to use and because it makes their life better, but there's a lot of people out there, I would say the majority of the people out there that are using, use because it's a way to escape or numb their life because their life's not enough or they've had all kinds of traumatic experiences. So we need to teach kids how to cope, and that's kind of where prevention comes in. Teaching kids life skills so that they actually have positive things they can do with their lives Um, and positive, uh, supports and interventions they, they can use instead of having to turn to something synthetic to solve their problems. Because the problem is that doesn't solve anything. It numbs me to it. But when I come down or sober up, guess what? Problems still there. We could also, uh, earmark some of that money for treatment because we need more treatment. And we could also earmark some of that money for harm reduction and earmark some of that money for, uh, recovery supports because honestly we need to fund all four of those better than we're funding them now period you know once again this shouldn't be a treatment against uh recovery supports or treatment against uh prevention or prevention against recovery supports we shouldn't be fighting against each other we need all of us to be effective so it's kind of like whenever people look at insulin and they're like well why does insulin cost so much and and uh narcan is free okay a narcan's not free different discussion but you're right it sucks that insulin costs as much as it does it sucks that uh oh my gosh uh for uh, anaphylactic shock um epipens cost as much as they do but there's also adrenoclick and stuff like that but that's a different story too but it sucks that those things are so expensive that's a problem also right? We shouldn't be saying, oh, well, look at this. This sucks. How dare them get this? We should be saying, oh my gosh, they need that money, but we need funding too. Oh my God, that's way too expensive. We need to reduce that cost and we need to reduce our costs too. We should be getting in this together instead of fighting against each other. As long as we are fighting against each other, big pharma, big business, big corporation, they win. They're going to win every single time they have us fighting against each other. So we need to come together and realize that there's a lot of problems out there. They're systemic problems. They are big macro problems. And the only way we're going to be able to address them is if we join together. Instead of somebody saying, well, harm reduction's king or recovery supports are king or treatment is the best thing. You know what? We are all needed absolutely 100 percent needed we need to get together we need to stop fighting against each other you know as a social worker i've seen it with psychology like as an lcsw i've seen it with lpcs you know we fight against each other because we need to make money but the honest to god truth is we both need to make money we both need to uh have our credentials be billable because we need all of us in this fight we're breaking records every single year for people dying by substance use disorder and suicide. We need more people, not less. But as long as we fight against each other, we're never going to change anything. Instead, it's going to be us yipping and yapping, and they can go focus on something else. They don't even have to worry about us coming to them or opposing them because we're so busy beating each other up. So You know what? I'm going to end on this. I love you guys. Um, I really hope that we can look at some of the other states like, say, Minnesota, which is looking at an opioid tax. Uh, I really hate the fact that there's some organizations that have gone there and lobbied against it. Uh, Pharma, we knew would lobby against it, but when we have things like uh, the Addiction Policy Forum that went there and argued against a tax that I think is vital, And I think we need it everywhere. Yes, it's going to cause some people to pay more money. But you know what? It's also going to save a lot of lives. And honestly, I'm more interested in saving lives than I am people paying out a little bit of money, right? Especially since a lot of that money is coming out of Medicaid and Medicare and insurance and it's paid for by my taxes and your taxes. I don't really care, right? I'd like to see a little bit more tax added to alcohol. And that money to be used for treatment, prevention, recovery supports. I really wish when they passed, uh, okay, medicinal, I understand. Medicinal marijuana, they're going to take the proceeds for that and apply it to veterans. I'm not sure how they're going to do that in the state of Missouri, but that's what passed. But if we legalize marijuana, I pray to God that they use those taxes because eventually it's going to happen. I mean, I would love to sit here and argue and say they're never going to legalize marijuana in the state of Missouri, but they're going to. They will legalize it. They will commercialize it. I think there's better ways to go about it, like uh, decriminalizing it, but that's a completely different discussion. But if we legalize it, commercialize it, I pray to God that they take those taxes that are raised through marijuana and that those taxes go to prevention, treatment, harm reduction, and recovery supports because we're going to see increases in the numbers of people that need it. Like I said, this isn't this isn't me railing on marijuana. Marijuana has some really good benefits, but the sooner people start using any drug, and marijuana is a drug, right? It's one of those drugs that a lot of people did start off with. It it was the first drug I ever used. And I went and hung out with those exact same people. <laughs> The next night, and we drank. And the next week, I met up with them and we tried many things. You know, I mean, it, it cascaded like that. And that's not everybody's experience. But either way, I hope that we take that money and we apply it and that we earmark it as above and beyond money that is already being paid in. Like we put it above and beyond what comes out of, say, block grant funding and some of those other programs so that they don't just reduce what's going in and then throw that money on top but it's actually still the same level for treatment and uh, prevention and they actually add money for recovery supports and harm reduction because right now we don't have anything in closing i just want to thank you for listening to the podcast Please join us every week for new episodes. If you want to connect with us further, if you have any questions, topics you'd like to hear in the future, or maybe you would like to be on the podcast sometime, you can connect with us at betterlifeandrecovery.com. There's a Better Life and Recovery page on Facebook, or you can uh, we're on Twitter, uh, BLIR underscore NPO. Also, this podcast is part of the Studio DNA Podcast Network. You can find out more about the network at studiodna.media. Thanks a lot. Y'all have a great week.